is the health condition impacting the eating disorder or is the eating disorder impacting the health condition? The big challenge for me was that um, it gave me an excuse not to eat. I really, really used the celiac disease as a reason not to eat. I became addicted to this cycle of restriction. There was a mix of me self-medicating when I wasn't seeing a professional and professionals actually giving me these diets. There's diet culture and then there's diabetes diet culture, Sam. So we've got that many things thrown at us. I realised that if I withheld my insulin that I need for my diabetes, that I wouldn't gain weight. This is Butterfly Let's Talk. Thanks to your national voice for body image issues and eating disorders, Butterfly. I'm Sam Eichen. Thanks for joining us. We know that treating an eating disorder can be complicated and difficult for all kinds of reasons. But when you're managing an eating disorder and then a co-occurring medical condition, that can add a whole new layer of complexity. And there are some conditions that it's really not uncommon for eating disorders to coexist with. These can include celiac disease, diabetes, IBS, endometriosis, and other hormonal disorders, and many others. All diets or things that are restrictive in either the quality or the quantity of food can absolutely lead to triggering eating disorders and disordered eating. My name is Dr. Angela Ralph, but everyone just calls me Angie, and I am a clinical psychologist. I've been working in public and private sectors, as well as adult and youth mental health for quite some time now, and I'm also the research lead at the National Eating Disorders Collaboration, or NEDC for short. Dr. Ralph says medical conditions that often co-occur with eating disorders are ones that have particular dietary requirements, and they often require restriction in some particular way or another. Largely restrictive eating disorders such as uh, anorexia nervosa, there'll be a lot of sort of physical complications with that, which can then also reinforce that restriction and that kind of cycle can go round and round. Similarly, though, with uh, bulimia nervosa and sort of binge eating disorder, which also often involve um, impacts of restriction as well. Sometimes it's a little bit less less clear in terms of is the health condition impacting the eating disorder or is the eating disorder impacting the health condition? And often it's both and often they're therefore reinforcing each other. My name's Lizzie. I'm 30, nearly 34. Um, I I'm work in education. I've taught in high schools, taught English, Italian and English as an additional language. I am recovering from a restrictive eating disorder and I also have celiac disease. So very happy to be here, very happy to share my story. So Lizzie, the Italian language teacher, was living in Italy when she realised that she had a problem with gluten. I, I felt like it wasn't able to process gluten in particular, which is a large part of Italian cuisine by the time you do bread, pasta and pizza. Um, Yeah, I just felt like my body wasn't able to process it in a way that it had been able to previously. It was also quite a big change to my diet because one of my parents has celiac disease. Having another celiac in the family, Lizzie was pretty sure that that's what she had too. But to get diagnosed, she had to adopt a very strict eating plan. That was a really challenging couple of months because they put you on a high gluten diet um, and I already knew that I 
wasn't tolerating gluten yeah. particularly well. So, yeah, I had to eat um, two pieces of bread a day, minimum equivalent gluten bread. Um, and for you know recovering a recovering recovering restrictive eating um, disorder, that's a challenge in and of itself. Let alone it containing gluten, which I was, you know, at that point ninety percent sure it wasn't agreeing with me. So. Um, yeah, by the end of those two months, I was pretty miserable. Um, I had terrible bloating. I looked like I was pregnant. Um, and indeed, um, when I arrived at hospital for the gastroscopy, my specialist took sort of one look at my stomach and was like, I think I could probably diagnose you just by looking at how swollen you are. Um, and I'm really sorry you've had to go through this, but you know, we have, they have to sort of definitively see damage. Um, but that yeah. was a, that was not a fun two months I did not feel did not feel well or good in my body dealing with the changes associated with the diagnosis of celiac disease is difficult for anyone and for Lizzie it was even more complicated because of her underlying eating disorder yeah so my eating disorder started when I was sort of a, an, in early adolescence so it was um, had been around for a while by then I think the big challenge for me was that um, it gave me an excuse not to eat. You know, in that first year of diagnosis, I graduated undergrad, I started a teaching program that was quite stressful and so my eating disorder flared and I really, really used the celiac disease as a reason not to eat. Like I can't eat this because I have celiac disease or, you know, I'm not going to advocate for myself in um, an in-residence program where they're feeding me because I have celiac disease and they're not doing a good job. It's not always clear to people who aren't experts whether restricting behaviours are occurring appropriately to mitigate the symptoms of an illness or if it's behaviours associated with an eating disorder. It was one of the worst periods of, of restrictive eating that I've had. Um, and uh, I also wasn't help-seeking in terms of that, so it made it quite difficult for my um, GP to manage me. And my, I did, was seeing a psychologist, um, but I, I refused... I refused diagnosis, I refused referrals to psychiatrists and my gastroenterologist who is a terrific doctor um, really didn't know what to make of um, the weight loss um, and was sort of flabbergasted and really trying to find a physical reason why I was unwell um, even though I had quite a blank conversation with him about what a restrictive eating disorder involved. Um, like it was almost... Almost like being in a, a movie or a television series. He he just didn't understand, and I don't think, I don't think knew anything about eating disorders. The coexistence of two health conditions can be extra difficult for patients and really challenging for clinicians who are trying to manage their care. In some cases, food is blamed for disease symptoms, but this isn't always certain. In other cases, restriction and disordered eating is a reaction to treatment. For example, things like the fear of weight gain. My name is Sienna Harmony Wiltshire. Um, I turned 27 three weeks ago and I live in Sydney, Australia. My dad's a type 1 diabetic, so when I was about seven, my mum saw symptoms in me, um, like I was urinating a lot, I was wetting the bed, I was constantly drinking litres of water and like I had a certain smell, kind of like acetone on my breath. And that's a sign of um, 
diabetic ketone acidosis. So that's, you know, a dead giveaway that you're diabetic. So my dad came over and checked my blood sugar and sure enough, I had type 1 diabetes and um, I took it all pretty well. I thought I was pretty cool, you know, it was something I could relate to my dad with. So I just went to the hospital for a week, thought I was cool. I was in year two, so I got day release to go to the school disco and life kind of went on from that. Um, I was fine with it. My blood sugars were really well managed up until I was about 13 years old. My whole life, I was a bit funny about my weight. Um, My mum was very underweight growing up. So when I was about eight, she only weighed, you know, you know, less than 10 kilos more than I did. And to me, it wasn't that she was underweight. It was that I was fat. So a child shouldn't be thinking like that. But um, I did. And then I remember weighing myself for an activity we were doing at school. And I was so stressed because I weighed more than other people. And, you know, that's just so unnecessary for a child that wasn't, you know, even in year six yet. But um, it just played with me a lot. I was in counselling from the time I was five for, you know, issues that my mum saw. But um, it didn't really start affecting me much until I was in high school. It was about at this stage that Sienna started messing with her life-saving insulin as a way to control her weight. Yeah, before my 13th birthday, I started doing that and I did it straight through until I was, you know, about 16 and it was horrible. You know, I was in physical pain all the time. You know, I couldn't walk most days. I used to be so weak you know I'd be rushing to the toilet three times an hour I'd be up you know 10 times a night going to the toilet and my mum would yell at me you know do your insulin Sienna please but I just you know pretended there was nothing going on I told myself that you know like if anyone had the ability to do that kind of thing and lose the amount of weight that I was losing they would do that so Sienna's story is heart-wrenching and believe me we're only just starting But her strength and determination to bounce back from all that she's been through is absolutely phenomenal. But I thought this might be a good point to bring in an expert who works in the diabetes field. People living with diabetes are up to three times more likely to develop an eating disorder. It's quite staggering, really. We're looking at around 35 percent of those living with diabetes also um, experiencing um, disordered eating or actually living with an eating disorder. So it's it's a high risk category. My name's Shannon. I'm an accredited practicing dietitian. Uh, I also have a master's of counseling, so have done uh, work in the counseling and mental health space. I'm currently doing work in both spaces. I also live with type 1 diabetes and have lived with diabetes for more than 33 years, so it's been, a, it's been a ride. Health workers like Shannon really need to be aware of the risks associated with treatments requiring special diets and food restrictions, and they really need to be aware of any signs of risk with any of their patients. There's diet culture and then there's diabetes diet culture, Sam. So we've got that many things thrown at us that we could try, um, and most of it we come across there's a lot of food rules so there's a lot of um emphasis on do's and don'ts 
good and bad, this way, not that way. Um, and I guess it absolutely contributes to, um, you know, there's those additional layers of complexity when it comes to relationship with food for people living with diabetes. So in answer to your question, I absolutely come across every single day people struggling with their relationship with food, people distressed about managing their food intake with their blood glucose management and their body in general. Um, and I and I absolutely talk to people about the importance of relationship with food, the, the health at every size paradigm and the option that is there and that there is another way. There's this huge emphasis on weight as well with diabetes and that can be a real driver for people um, with eating dis- as far as eating disorders go. And I don't know, Sam, if you're aware of the term diabolemia for people living with diabetes. I'm glad that you brought it up. So yeah, please tell us about it. Diabolemia is a term that is ref- it refers to an eating disorder specifically in a person living with diabetes. And it's typically type 1 because that's a total dependence dependent on they're dependent on insulin to live if you don't do your insulin your body eats itself pretty much it attacks all of your organs it eats all of your fat first and then everything that you put into your body pretty much just burns up and so it's it's actually characterized by the restriction of insulin in order to control weight there can be different reasons for that um, occurring it can be body image issues it can be, and the desire to lose weight, it can be diabetes burnout. So it can be overwhelm that can trigger it. So I'm going to stop taking my insulin because this is all too much. And then that can sort of spiral from there, I guess. It can even be traumatic, stressful life events not associated with diabetes and a way of controlling something. So, oh, I, I know that if I manipulate my insulin, then I can control my weight and that's something I can have control of for sure that's a certainty in my life because so much of living with diabetes as well is about acceptance that a lot of the time we can do our very best and things don't work out the way we plan Let's go back to Sienna. She was beginning to get on top of her behaviours in year 11 when a pain in her stomach turned out to be gallstones. It was a condition that needed surgery to fix, but then she faced a three-month wait for the procedure. While I was waiting for the surgery, I got another complication from keeping my blood sugars high, which was peripheral neuropathy. And um, for the first year or so with that, all of the nerves in your legs are exposed. So your skin's still there, everything looks normal, but you can feel everything, like from like air hitting your legs, from, you know, the pants that you're wearing touching your skin, from the water in the shower. It's like your legs are on fire. Three days after my 17th birthday, mum finally, you know, couldn't take it anymore, so she called an ambulance. And um, I went to the hospital and they told me that I was probably too frail for the surgery because I wouldn't recover. And then I said, look, if I don't get the surgery, then I'm not going to recover anyway because I can't eat, you know. I'm in too much pain for this. And um, we said, look, we'll wait on it a little bit. And then the next day I had a heart attack. Um, 
I was trying to take myself to the toilet at, in the in my hospital room, which I knew was stupid because I hadn't walked by myself in about, you know, six weeks or so. So um, me trying to get up and go by myself was a bad idea. And I made it to the end of my bed and then I woke up the next day. They removed my gallbladder. Right. And um, they started medicating me for my legs too. So... I woke up from that surgery and instantly I felt, you know, not normal, but I felt better. And I sound like I'm exaggerating that, but I'm not at all. Like I woke up and it was just like instant relief. Well, I'd like to say that that's the end of Sienna's traumatic experience, but there's more. We just don't have time to go through it all in a half hour episode. The idea of eating disorders co-occurring with other health conditions raises the important question of which one do you treat first? Health conditions don't occur in silos and neither should their treatment. So things to look out for would be the impact on a person's life and that is can go across a variety, in fact, all domains. So it might be um, social aspects, you know, not being able to eat with other people or withdrawing from people socially. You know, are you able to function at your job? Are you able to do your job? Are you able to concentrate at school or whatever life stage you're at? Or are you preoccupied with food? Or do you have an impaired kind of concentration from your eating disorder? and I'm um, 35 years old and I have a lived experience with uh, disordered eating and endometriosis. For a really long time, I actually didn't know that that's what I was living with. Quite a long time ago, probably 10 years ago, um, I was having a lot of digestive symptoms um, that sort of manifested actually out of a period in my life where I was dieting quite a bit. These digestive symptoms I was searching um, for quite some time, seeing various doctors, trying to understand what was going on. And this this process lasted like probably five years. And um, eventually through all the doctors that I was seeing, I got to a gynecologist and he diagnosed me with this condition called endometriosis, which I had absolutely no idea about. And at that time, I was quite like I wasn't really understanding what was going on because there was no explanation. All I knew is that this was a gynecological issue, but the symptoms that I was dealing with were digestive. He basically said, there's nothing we can do for endometriosis. If you want to come back and see me um, when you're thinking about falling pregnant, we know at this point that that can have um, an effect on how you feel symptomatically. When I was given this diagnosis and wasn't able to control it, I started to read a lot and um, started to try controlling this with my um, food and what I was eating. And symptoms were also, with digestive comes not being able to go to the toilet properly, it hurting when you have bowel motions, lots of bloating. So in my head I thought, well, if I eat less or if I eat things that are better for me, perhaps I can help how I'm feeling. Frustrated that her doctors couldn't help her with the symptoms, Ange turned to a naturopath. She she gave me a gut protocol 
the NISCARP protocol um, without really discussing with me any sort of past history that I had. Um, it was designed to lower inflammation in my body and um, that involved cutting out certain foods. And I was given a strict protocol to follow for about two weeks. And I found very quickly that I attached to that idea of like a tablet that a doctor gives you, you're supposed to feel better within two weeks of this gut protocol. And I didn't, my symptoms weren't going anywhere. So, um, I went to another naturopath and another and another, um, there was a dietitian in there, there was a nutritionist in there. And so that was sort of, there was a lot of elimination diets that I had to do. Even recently, I, I was seeing um, a nutritionist who's actually body positive as well. And she is anti-diet, but she put me on a diet, which is, which can help some people. But for me, my history doesn't really allow for that sort of thing, unless it's really carefully guided. So there was a mix of me self-medicating when I wasn't seeing a professional and professionals actually giving me these diets. So I wasn't fueling my body. I became so afraid of things. Rather than adding good foods into my diet, nutrient-dense foods into my diet, I was removing things because I was afraid. And so anyone with a health condition knows that if you're not properly feeding yourself, it's important to give your body what it needs. And I wasn't doing that. And then also I think worrying about, oh my gosh, you know, I've got to heal the endometriosis or fix the problem with cutting out this or cutting out that, that's placing a lot of stress on my body. And as we all know, stress on the body doesn't help. Pretty much all of the clinicians that we've had on this show tell us that recovery takes a team. You need the support of your family, friends and carers, as well as professionals like your GP, psychologist and dietitian. Dr. Ralph says that when you're experiencing a co-occurring medical condition, the doctors that you're seeing for that condition also need to be brought into the team. What people forget sometimes is other specialists and other health professionals need to be included in that. They need to be included in communications and all meetings, you know, case conferences and those things because everything that we're doing is impacting another part of our health and considering eating disorders, you know, have so many physical and psychiatric um, complications as well as co-occurring conditions, it really does need uh, a team approach. Now I work with my GP, I have a psychologist, I see a nutritionist and a psychiatrist um, and depending on how I'm doing, like, I can meet with them more regularly or less regularly depending on how I'm feeling. Learning to take responsibility for myself um, and recognising that it's my my job and yeah, my privilege to take care of myself and my body um, has been really empowering. If you can fail and fail and fail and then get up again, that is that's actually the journey. Like that's the that's when you're you're healing. Like that's actually healing. And I didn't see that. If I have a bad day yesterday and I wake up today and I go, actually, I'm feeling okay today, it's recognising those things. For Sienna, the current holistic approach that Dr. Ralph and other clinicians are now recommending, that is including doctors, dietitians, psychologists and counsellors in one comprehensive treatment team, makes a lot of sense, especially when it comes to diabulimia. 
from the time I was 13 until pretty much now, it hasn't been recognised in Australia. And it breaks my heart seeing people going through the same thing because the last thing in the world I want is for anybody to be in the same position as me right now. Do you think that if this had been something that was acknowledged and was being more widely treated, that way back when you were 13, I would that be could have helped? Fine. I would have been fine right now. If I had the help that I needed back then, I would have been okay. All I would say to someone, if they're listening and they feel like any of this resonates, talk to people, talk to talk to your loved ones, talk to your healthcare professionals, get the support you need. It's out there. You're not alone. And in Australia, that support is just a phone call away. There are trained clinicians ready to take your call seven days a week from 8am until midnight. The number to call is 1800 33 4673. Or if you prefer letters, it's 1-800-ED-HOPE. If you're a clinician and you'd like to be listed on the Butterfly Referral Database, please contact Butterfly at referraldatabase at butterfly.org.au. For all diabetes-related inquiries, check out the Diabetes New South Wales website. They'll be able to point you in the right direction wherever you are. Go to diabetesnsw.com.au. And for all other health concerns, a good place to start is Health Direct. That's healthdirect.gov.au or 1-800-022-222. This show is produced by Icon Media for Butterfly Foundation. Huge thanks to Camilla Beckett and Kate Mulray from Butterfly, especially this month with the arrival of my new baby. Thank you, guys. Our guests this week were Dr. Angelique Ralph, Shannon McDonough, Elizabeth Calder, Sienna Wilshire and Ange Kuder. Thanks for joining us again on Butterfly Let's Talk. And if you'd like to help us out, one thing you can do that we would really appreciate is to leave us a review or give us a rating wherever you get this podcast. And of course, share it with anyone who you think could benefit from it. I'm Sam Eichen. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>